God, we come before you and I ask for your blessing uh, on your word this morning. Uh, Lord, there's going to be a lot of information that will be shared this morning. I pray that it will be useful and helpful to your people, that we will be able to understand a little more of who we are as a church and what you have called us uh, to do and to be a part of. So Lord, uh, quiet our hearts, allow the distractions of the week and even of today to uh, move out of the way so that we may know your good and pleasing will to the glory of our God and Father in heaven and all God's people said, Amen. Well, we begin a new series that we've entitled Exploring Ecclesiology. And I had a couple people come up and say, did you uh, misspell that word? What is that word? Ecclesiology. And uh, mostly what we do here as a church is in our preaching series is we go through a book of the Bible or a particular passage, chapter of Scripture, and we work through that passage verse by verse, just as we did with the last 10 weeks of Jonah, going from Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to the end of the book. Well, over the next couple months, we want to do something a bit different. We want to spend the next two months talking about the church. Of course, uh, if you don't know, uh, the word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia. And we're going to learn a little bit more about that word. But of course, the study of the ekklesia is ecclesiology. And so we want to spend the next couple months focused in on this organism, this body that we call the church. Why are we here? What are we to be doing? What uh, has God called us uh, to be a part of when it comes to uh, different uh, rituals or, or symbols is a better word for, uh, for the church? Who leads the church? Uh, what is church discipline? What are we as a church to do to be able to transform the culture around us? Those are questions that we want to answer uh, in the upcoming weeks. We want to understand because as we read the New Testament, and especially the book of Acts, we come to this storyline of the church. And we want to be the church. We want to be a good church. But sometimes we don't understand how to do that. And we're going to spend these couple weeks looking at what God's Word says on what His blueprint for the church is. Now last month I uh, was at a doctor's appointment. And the doctor was talking with me after he had the nurse take my blood pressure and, and checked me all out. He says, uh, let me ask you a question. He said, uh, one of my nurses says, you're a busy guy. Uh, do you carry a lot of stress? I said, yeah, you could say that. I said, uh, stress is an ongoing thing for me. And he says, well, I want you to relieve some of the stress. He says, your blood pressure is good, but it will only continue to go up if you don't uh, alleviate some of the stress. He says, I want you to do something about your stress. And I said, well, what do you want me to do about the stress? He says, I want you to find something that will relieve it. I says, I know it will relieve it. A couple hour nap on the couch, that will take care of my stress. He says, you know what? A study was just done by the uh, American Medical Association that says to relieve stress, sleep and relaxation is not the way to do it. I said, that's a bunch of hogwash. Come on. Sleep cures everything. He says, no. He says, what they're learning is, is that for stress to be relieved, uh, you need to find something that you can do that takes your mind off of the stressful things in your life. I said, well, what are you doing when you're sleeping? You're not thinking anything. And he says, come on now. He says, work with me here. He says, I want you to do something. And I said, okay, well, what do you want me to do? He says, I'll give you a choice of some things that you can do. He says, I want you to consider learning how to fly a kite. I said, you can fly a kite. He says, no, he says, okay, if you don't want to fly a kite, build a model. I said, build a model? What are you talking about? He went on and he says, have you ever thought of taking up painting? I said, painting? Is this what I pay you for? And then he said, he goes, maybe pottery. I said, you can get beat up with a guy my size making pottery. And then he said, have you ever thought about putting together a puzzle? And I said, said, did my wife put you up to this? And he says, why is that? I says, well, I was given this great big puzzle for Christmas by uh, a uh, brother and sister-in-law. And I looked at it when I got it and said, they didn't know what to buy me. So they bought me something they knew I would never, ever touch in all my life. And he says, that's it. He says, and uh, next time I see you, I want that puzzle put together. So this last couple of weeks, I've said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And then I cleared off the dining room table, a couple thousand, I believe, piece puzzle. 
and, uh, and it's the skyline of Chicago. And uh, I started to put it together little by little, and I'll tell you what, the doctor's a moron. You want to know why? <laughs> Have you ever put a puzzle together? You want to talk about stress. I told Amanda, I said, come on, this is insane. I'm more stressed out now than I ever am at work. And the reason why is because I, I would look out to my dining room table and all I saw were pieces. And they didn't make any sense to me. And then I would look to the cover of the box and say, boy, that looks beautiful. And I'm like, where's the little man that's going to put this together for me? And yet that's many times how we look at church. We look at church and we look at the picture, the display, and we say, wow, that's great. Wow, it's amazing what the church can do. It's amazing how God has created this thing called the church. And it all looks great and it sounds great. I remember going home saying, oh, a puzzle would be nice. It would help me. It would be nice to turn off the TV and just interact with this, uh, this puzzle. And yet when I got down to it, I found myself looking at a table full of pieces that made no sense. For a lot of us here, we look at the church, and yes, we go through the motions. Yes, we go through and we do the things that Christians are to do within the church. But many of us have very little understanding of why we do those things, why we are who we are. Some of you don't even understand why we are a Bible church. What are the core values of what created this church? Why 30-some years ago, a group of people said, the other churches in our area, for whatever reason, aren't particularly meeting our needs or addressing the issues that are important to us. What were those issues? What were those things? How do we fit in line when, when it comes to the church and the history, the 2,000 years now since Christ established the church? Why are we here? What are we to accomplish? Some of us don't even understand the practices that we have. For some of us, we, we watch baptisms take place and aren't really sure what's going on other than maybe someone forgot to take a bath. And then, then some of us think when the communion trays are passed around like my son does, oh, it's snack time. Woo, good, I was getting hungry. You could get a little bigger of a cup of juice maybe. But we don't understand fully what we are to know when it comes to the church. And so you know what we do many times and what I've done with this stupid puzzle is I have found little parts of the puzzle and then I stop and feel content that I've put it together. Give you an example of this puzzle that we're putting together here. Uh, we have got Navy Pier put together, okay? And we, where Amanda and I were high-fiving one another that we got Navy Pier put together, that the people on the Ferris wheel were all connected like they were supposed to be. And yet, when we come to the church, many times we say, if I just have a little understanding, that's good enough. Let me tell you something. There's a beautiful picture called the church. And it has a lot of pieces. A lot of pieces that many times don't look like they come together. But we want to, over the next couple of weeks, put a puzzle together. And for some of you, you're going to walk out one week and you're going to say, well, that didn't make any sense. It's just like me looking at that puzzle on the table. But after all this series is done, my desire is that you'll be able to look at the picture that's been put together and say, that is the church. Here is my role within it. Here is why we do the things that we do. And here is how we glorify God in the midst of living out that church life together. Well, how are we to get there this morning? I want you to get a pen. You're going to be writing down a lot of notes. Most of them will be on the screen, even though they're not in your uh, inserts this morning. But how are we to understand the church? We need to understand it by exploring four aspects of the church. The first thing we need to understand about the church is we need to understand it from a grammatical standpoint. And we need to understand it grammatically. When we come to a place uh, where we talk about the church, we come to a word that, how do you define church? What is the word that we would say, well, I'm going to church. Well, well, what is church, if someone was to ask? And you'd probably go through, well, it's a, it's a, it's a building. Well, well, church really isn't a building. It's a, uh, it's a religious organization. Yes, that's true. Um, it's a uh, place where we gather together to talk about Jesus. Yes, that is true. But, but do we really know what the church is? 
Well, to understand it, we need to look at a name. Anytime you want to understand something uh, about uh, someone or something, you need to look at a name. For example, my name is Timothy Daniel. The reason why I was named Timothy Daniel, Timothy, of course, from the Bible, was a young boy who turned into a disciple of Paul's who was from a mixed marriage. His mother was Jewish, his father was uh, a Greek, and so he was from a uh, two uh, nationalities that he was a part of. Well, that's my, my life, my heritage. My father is a Syrian from the Middle East, my mother is uh, English-Irish. And when they, came, uh, when they came to my naming, they said, you know what, uh, our son is one who comes from a mixed background. And so I'm constantly, every time I hear my name, I'm reminded of that because my name means something. The name Daniel is an important name for me as well. My parents wanted a boy after they saw their second son was born. They wanted a son who would be a man of integrity, a man who both believers and unbelievers would speak well of. Well, who am I named after? Daniel the prophet, the man who even though great accusations were brought against him, he was able to stand true and be steadfast because he was a man of character, even when it meant going against the crowd. It also meant that he was a man of prayer. And so as a young boy, my parents said, we want this young man, this little baby, to become a man of integrity and a man of prayer. There's a reason for names. Names tell us something. So what does the name church tell us about what we're a part of. Well, the Greek word uh, that is used for church, it's 113 times used in the New Testament, is the Greek word, as I said, ekklesia. It's the Greek word ekklesia. What does this word mean? It is an assembly of people gathered together. Well, you say, oh, Tim, wait a minute, that, that doesn't help us any. Yes, we are an assembly of people gathered together, but is there something more to it? There really isn't. Now, I know that some of you have come to the understanding. I did even before uh, this week had this understanding that what uh, ecclesia meant was called out ones. How many have heard that saying that what the church means is that we are a group of called out ones? Has anybody ever thought of that or heard of that? Some of you have. Some of you are still sleeping this morning. But the word ecclesia comes from uh, the... uh, the breaking down of two words, ek, which means out, kaleo, which means called. And so the etymology of this word, it tells us it literally means to call out. The problem is we don't see anywhere in the New Testament to have that significant understanding to this. So what does it mean? It really doesn't mean called out. It wasn't the usage in the first century. Literally what it was was a group of people gathered together uh, in an assembly. This is what uh, one a dictionary put it. In comparison with all of the terms, ecclesia for the church was a relatively neutral and colorless term, conveying by itself little theological meaning. It was open to use without basic shift in meaning by unbelievers as well as believers. Ecclesia was used to designate a particular communal reality, not to describe qualitative aspects. It describes anything that might be happening with a community that requires an assembly. This assembly could be social, governmental, or religious. It could be legal or illegal. So that is where we get this word, ecclesia. So if I was to look out in first century Greece, I would look out to a group and I'd say, hey, look at the ecclesia, the assembly of people gathered together. Well, that doesn't help us, does it? It doesn't make us understand any more uh, what we need to know about this idea of this church, this thing that we're a part of every Sunday and many other days through the week. So if the name doesn't tell us much, we need to look at what the Bible says about some of the metaphors that are used or some of the images that are given. Now, before we get to the metaphors and images, we need to understand that this ecclesia... The church is broken up into two divisions. Write this down. Their first is the invisible church. The invisible church. Now, what is the invisible church? The invisible church, write this down, is the church that only God sees. It is the church that only God sees. 
And you say, well, wait a minute. Is this some sort of ghost church? What, what is this invisible church? Well, the church is uh, invisible or universal church is described in a couple places in the scriptures. Uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, uh, open up to Matthew chapter 16 for a moment. Matthew chapter 16. Let's look at a couple places where the scriptures describe this invisible or universal church. Matthew 16. In verse 13, I'll start reading and then we'll get to the text, uh, the verse that I'm going to be addressing. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Verse 17, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my, what's that word there? Church. Now, he doesn't say, uh, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build Village Bible Church. He says, I'm going to build my church. Well, what is the church? The church is the people of God, not just from today in a certain location, but of all locations today, as well as all locations throughout all of the history of Christendom. And so what that means is that we are a part of the invisible church, the church of all ages who are people who have been called by the name of God and who have been saved. Some characteristics that we need to understand about this invisible ecclesia is that all members are saved. Write that down. All members are saved. Every man, woman, and child that is a part of the invisible church is a saved, bona fide, saved son or daughter of God. The next thing that we see is after all members are saved, is we see the next is, uh, let's see here, within that, that both living and dead Christians are involved. And so what that means is the invisible church is not just of those who uh, are living today, but as Hebrews tells us, that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. The cloud of witnesses are those who have, uh, if you will, gone before us, those who have lived served God and died at some point earlier in this, uh, in their life and in history. The next thing that we see is that only, there's only one universal church. There's only one universal church, meaning there isn't a lot of local churches, but there is one church. The Bible says that we are saved into one body. And so we are all part, whether we call ourselves Presbyterians, Baptists, Independents, uh, whether we live here in uh, Illinois or find ourselves on the West Coast or on the far reaches of Asia, whether we live during the 20th century or the 2nd or 3rd century, if we are a part of the universal church, we are a part of one church. The next thing that we see with regards to this invisible church is there is no single denomination. There's no single denomination. Again, within the universal church, there is no such thing as Catholic or Protestant, Presbyterian or Baptist, Methodist, or anything like that. There is no denomination. We are one body, not separated, but united with Christ. The next thing that we see in regards to that, it involves the entire body of Christ. What that means is is there's no parts missing. The universal church is the body of Christ. And finally, we see that there we only have one head or one leader, and that's Christ. Christ is the only head of this church. No matter if your church has a pastor or as Catholics that you uh, uh, revere and uh, have the Pope as your leader, it doesn't matter because All of us in the universal church follow Jesus Christ. Well, the second usage of the word ecclesia is found in the visible ecclesia or the visible church. The idea here is that it's different than the invisible one and the universal one, but it is a visible or local church. Write some of these passages down. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. 
1 Thessalonians 1, 1, Philemon 1, 2, and Acts 9, 31. What do all these verses say? In all of these verses, there is a specific church that is being spoken about. At the end of Romans, Paul tells the church in Rome. This isn't the invisible church or the universal church. This is a specific church. We are a visible local church called Village Bible. We are not the total church. We are one part of the church. We are a part of the church within uh, a certain segment of time, within a certain segment of geography, with a certain segment of people that make up the visible local Village Bible Church. Well, there's some uh, things that we need to understand. Of the visible church, we can have membership. And of course, this is the church that we see. This is the church that's visible to us. We see that both members can be saved and lost. Why is that? Uh, Because we don't know who is saved and lost. We can only assume by the works and the testimony of someone's heart, but only God knows the heart of the people. And so if you think this morning that because you are a member of Village Bible Church that that says to you right away that you are saved, you got some issues and you need to talk with someone very quickly because if you assume that your membership gets you to heaven, the local church can have both members who are saved and lost. It involves only us who are living at this particular time. So it's only us here who are alive. It involves many local churches, just like Village, many of the other churches in our area, the churches in the country, all around the world. There's a local church to it. We have differing denominations. In fact, in the visible church of our day, there are thousands of denominations that are represented in the different churches in the world. The local church, Village Bible Church, is only part of the body of Christ. We are not the full body of Christ, but we are part of the body of Christ, together with the other churches that live during our same time, but also those that have gone before us and those that will go after us. Of course, there are different types of government for those churches. Some are elder-led, some are led by the congregation, some are led by a pope or a papacy, others are led by uh, a denomination. Uh, There's different ways that we can govern within our church. And so we have these two categories of both the universal and uh, visible and invisible church. Now, what are we to do with that? Now, once we understand the different ways we can look at this term ecclesia, we need to look at how the Bible begins to describe it. And so there are some metaphors that we need to look at. The scriptures give us, uh, in, very quickly, six key metaphors to this idea of the church. And it helps us understand if ecclesia is just a group of people gathered together, how do we know who we are and what we're all about? The scripture makes it clear. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. The first metaphor that we see is that the church is the bride of Christ. We've heard that terminology before. It's the bride of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 23 tells us this. It says, uh, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now he goes on and he says, he talks about the husbands. He says, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He goes on to say that he would present uh, the church to himself as a radiant church. He says, in the same ways, uh, we need to care for ourselves as husbands and care for our wives. But he says, just as Christ does the church. He says, after talking about husbands and wives, he says this in verse 30, uh, let's see, 32. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. The first thing we need to understand about the church is that it is the bride of Christ. This isn't some partnership, business proposition that was done between a group of people, the church, and Jesus. But Jesus tells us and makes it quite clear that he loves us, that he cares for us, that he will minister to us as a good husband ministers to his wife. 
He sacrifices. He cares. He nurtures. He presents her as pure and radiant. This is the relationship. It reminds us that when we are a part of a church, it is not an organizational entity that we're joining, but we're joining into a corporate love relationship with our Savior. The next thing that we see is we see that we are called the flock of God, the sheep of God's flock. Turn your Bibles to John for a moment. John chapter 10. If you're in the book of Ephesians, go to your left to the book of John. John chapter 10. This is what John 10 tells us, starting in verse 14. Jesus uses another metaphor. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen, but I must bring them along also. They too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. He goes on, he says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, authority to take it up. This command I received from my Father. Jesus says the next metaphor that we need to understand about the church is that we are the flock of God. We are a bunch of sheep. Now that should tell us something. Number one, sheep are dumb. And so we should always assume that uh, we, by nature, spiritually, are dumb people. That doesn't mean we can't be theologians, we can't be scholars, but we don't understand the things that our shepherd understands. The other thing that we need to recognize within this metaphor is that because we are a part of the flock of God, we have a shepherd, that leader, that shepherd who feeds us and protects us and watches over us and does all the things that a good shepherd does for his sheep. So Jesus does for us. We can't in and of ourselves protect ourselves. We can't in and of ourselves be fed by ourselves. But we need someone to guide us, as the Psalm 23 tells us, to the wonderful pastures of green grass. We need to be fed and protected by our shepherd. The next thing we see is the body of Christ. The book of Ephesians again tells us this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16. This is what the text tells us. It says, It was him who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. He goes on to say, instead of speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself in love as each part does its work. What does the body of Christ tell us about the church? It tells us quite simply that we are parts of a whole. We're an arm, we're a hand, we're a leg, we're a toe. But we need to understand that amidst all those parts that we can be, Jesus Christ is the head. Without the head, we are nothing. Without the brain uh, telling us what to do, we would not be able to do anything on our own. The next thing that he gives is the family of God. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 says this, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. The idea here of the family of God shows us the closeness that we as a church have to our Father in heaven. Because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are able to go to our Father whom we've been adopted by and call out and say, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy. We have a connection because of that. And so this isn't just a group of people that are gathered together who all like the same kind of preaching or music, but we are a part of the family of God. We're brothers and sisters because of Christ. John 15, 1 through 4 tells us that we are uh, the vine, or I'm sorry, that we are the branches and that God is the vine. John 15 tells us that if we are not as a church connected to the vine, we will die. That if we try to do Village Bible Church on our own, we will shrivel up and produce no fruit. And so the metaphor reminds us that we have to be continually connected to Christ. The final one is the house of God. Ephesians chapter 2, 
Verses 19 through 22 says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The last metaphor is, is that we are a bunch of stones, the scripture says, being built up, but we are being built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And again, one of many founded on the person and work of Jesus Christ. These are metaphors that are used. These are things that we don't usually connect together and say, this is the church. It's a church that's a bride. It's a church that's a flock. It's a church that's a body, a family. It's a group of branches that's connected to a vine. It's the house of God. These are important things that we understand because if we don't understand these metaphors, we don't understand who we are. And so that brings us to a definition this morning. What is the church? The church is the following. It is a community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. In obedience to Scripture, they organize locally under qualified leadership, gather regularly for preaching and worship. They observe the biblical ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. They're unified by the Spirit and are disciplined for holiness And they are scattered to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission to the world for God's glory and their joy. That is what I would consider a simplistic understanding and definition of the church. That's who we are. We need to know who we are. And until we know who we are, we will never know what God has called us to be a part of. Well, before we can even move beyond that definition, we need to understand a second aspect of the church, and that is historically. Historically. Now, we need to have an understanding of how the church came about and and how it's described, but we also need to look at how it came about and, and what has been its history, its life. Now, for evangelicals, I am talking to a group of people that many of you will say, who cares about church history? Don't we care about the here and now? You see, because we are an independent church, we don't have a connected lineage uh, throughout the ages, or at least we don't think we do, but sadly for some, uh, it is true. We do have a lineage that goes all the way back uh, to the uh, teaching of Christ. But we're just like in any life, just like in your own life, there are certain periods of time that you look back and say, I wish I would have done that differently during that time. Or maybe during my teenage years, those, those weren't good times. Well, just as in the life and the history of the church, there are chapters of time that we sit there and say, boy, I wish uh, I didn't have to be a part of that. Boy, I wish I wouldn't have responded in that way. But we need to understand that is the history of the church that we're a part of. And you say, well, that's one particular denomination. Let's talk about that for a moment. Because historically, the church can be divided up into four divisions. The first one, write this down. This is important. And I'll try to move through it as quickly as possible. Is The first division we have is post-apostolic times. The post-apostolic times. That would be seen from the year 33 AD, uh, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, to about the 6th century. Now, during that time, we would have, uh, of course, the writing of the rest of the New Testament taking place. That's where Peter and the disciples would start the church in Acts chapter 2. We would see then that the pastoral letters would be written by Paul, the epistles, and all the other aspects of the New Testament would be written. Now, we know that the last apostle, the last disciple uh, to die is the apostle John. He dies in A.D. 90. He dies on the island of Patmos. And so we know that the last of the apostles dies about 10 years before the first century comes to a close. What happens after that? Well, this is where uh, we, especially evangelicals, get a little foggy. And that very few times does a preacher talk about these uh, times. Because it is here that we have, then during those days, the church being led by what we call the early church fathers. Who are these early church fathers? 
These early church fathers, most of them were disciples of the disciples. Let me give you a couple names so you know. There was the man named Ignatius, which historians tell us was mentored by the Apostle John. He would then appoint overseers to areas. And some of these guys, their names were Polycarp, uh, Onesimus. Does anybody remember Onesimus? He was written in what book of the Bible? Philemon. He was one of the leaders uh, after the apostles left the scene. Of course, we know Clement in Rome, who was a disciple of Peter's. These men are some of the church fathers. Later on, we would have church fathers like Augustine, Eusebius, Justin Martyr, Origen, Tertullian. Many of these would die and would be immortalized in the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. These are the ones that were thrown into the Roman Colosseum and thrown to the animals to be destroyed. Why? Because they would stand true to God and His Word and to the church. During this time, there would be incredible writings that would be done. We have the Didache, which is the Apostles' teaching. We have, the, of course, the Apostles' Creed. There were councils that would go on during this time that would thwart heresy. The Council of Nicaea and Chalcedon. Each of these documents, each of these councils are bedrock to our faith. I want you to understand that. We say we are a Bible church and we hold to the Word of God. Amen to that. But we cannot pull ourselves out of church history. The Apostles' Creed is a good, solid understanding of the faith. To the point that I would say it is completely acceptable for us as a church to recite it. Now people say, whoa, isn't that what Catholics and Lutherans do? You better believe it. And it's okay. It's okay to do. The church at, uh, the council at Nicaea writes some of the greatest words written by human authors about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Talking about that he is light of light, God of God. These councils, these creeds are good. They're good for us to read. They're good for us to understand because it is from these understandings that some of the most cardinal beliefs and truths are become bedrock of our faith. Many of which that we don't have full understanding or disclosure in the Word of God are laid forth during this time. So then what happens? Well, about the 6th century, we have what we call the Roman Catholic Church. From the 6th century to present, of course... Now, Roman Catholics, if you're a part of or been a part of the Roman Catholic Church, you would say, wait a minute, Tim, uh, the Roman Catholic Church didn't start in the 6th century. When would they say it started? Does anybody know? With Peter. Matthew 16, 18. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The interpretation of the Catholic Church is, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build the Roman Catholic Church. Why? Because Peter was the first pope. And that's what they say. He's the first pope. And they go back all the way and they say the first pope was Peter. And they have, and you can go on an internet or find it in an encyclopedia, from Peter on to today, Pope Benedict, every day, every year, between those two times, there has been a line of succession. Just like we have presidents, there have always been popes. So why do I say the 6th century? Because we do not see the Roman Catholic Church from the first century to the sixth century. We see the Catholic Church, the universal church. That's why in the Apostles' Creed we believe in one holy Catholic church, but it's in a small c. And that's okay for us as Protestants to say, because we do believe in one universal church. It's okay to say stuff like that. But where it really begins, Roman Catholicism as we know it today, starts with Pope Gregory. Pope Gregory, or Gregory the Great in the 6th century, began to create a distinction between him as Pope and everybody else. It is the first distinction that the Pope carried the kind of clout and authority that the Pope does today. It is from the 6th century on that we see things like the Mass, uh, the re-sacrificing of Jesus through uh, the time of the Eucharist or the communion time. We see salvation by works coming as a result after the 6th century. We see the sacraments, things like baptism and, and communion and, and many of the other ones, marriage and the holy orders and penance and confirmation. We see the papacy, the elevation of the Pope to be the head of the church. We see the doctrine 
doctrines of Mary come about between the 6th century and as far uh, or as, as uh, recent as uh, the last understanding or teaching on Mary that has become a part of the dogma of the church happened in 1954. The Roman Catholic Church from the 6th century to today has been an evolving church with all its understanding of who it is. But something happens in 1054, and that's where we get the Orthodox Church. The Orthodox Church. Orthodox Church comes about in 1054. There's something that we call the Great Schism. Now, we have one church, one church during that time, and it is, in fact, the Roman Catholic Church, not as we would see it during that time, but nonetheless, a church that has its seat in Rome. It had a leader, but in 1054, something happens. As a result of the ongoing pressure by the popes that they need to have more and more authority, and because of some of the beliefs, there's a schism, there's a church split between the Roman Catholic Church and, uh, of the West and the Church of the East. There's a fight between two capital cities of the church. You have Rome for the West, and in the East you have Constantinople, which is in modern-day Turkey. And so you have two divisions... Then there was this issue of icons or images, whether we could worship uh, statues and images. Uh, The West, Roman Catholic Church, said, no, you can't do that. The East, the Orthodox Church, said, yeah, you can do that. There was a split over the papacy. The Roman Catholic Church said, yes, the Pope is the seed of Peter. He's the guy. He's the one that does everything. The Orthodox Church said, no, there are to be leaders, but they are to be first among equals amongst the leaders of God's people. The issue of celibacy in 1054 was going on. The Orthodox said, hey, let your pastors get married. The Roman Catholic said, no, don't you dare do that. And as a result of these things, the church splits. And it becomes, of course, the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. That happens in 1054. Now, during that time, from 1054 on, we have what we call the Dark Ages of Christianity. In fact, really, from the 6th century on, there is a time of great corruption in the church. Of course, during this time, we have the medieval uh, crusades taking place, where the church is a part of butchering, and i using that word very strongly, butchering people, doing things that we as Christians would uh, become sick about. But we need to understand it's a part of our history. And it isn't until uh, 1517 that we have the Protestant Reformation. Of course, Martin Luther is a monk. He is a professor at the University of Wittenberg, a Roman Catholic himself. He is reading from the Old Testament Scriptures and then sees it in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that the righteous shall live by faith. A light bulb comes on and he says, wait a minute, we are not saved by works. We are saved by grace through faith. That's what it is. And it can't be any other way. During that time, they were building what we know as St. Peter's Basilica, where the Vatican is. And during that time, a guy by the name of Tetzel goes around all of Germany, and he has a motto. It's the first fundraising that we hear about in the Catholic Church. And the way they did it, it's kind of uh, a neat way to do it. You would fire all of us if we tried to do this. But what they did is said, hey, if you give to building of St. Peter's Basilica, we will write you a certificate that gets you out of purgatory. That's pretty unique, isn't it? And then they went around, they had a song. As the coin in the coffin, because he carried around this coffin as a, a word picture, if you will. He says, as the coin in the coffin rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Luther says, wait a minute, chapter and verse on that, Tetzel. There's nowhere that scriptures say if you pay, you get out of hell and find your way into heaven. Come on. And so there we have the Protestant Reformation. Now, the reason why we call it the Protestant, do you want to know, does anybody understand why the word Protestant is the name of the church we're a part of? Look at the first one, two, three, four, seven words. What are we doing? We're protesting. That's a harsh word, you know that? I've got Catholic relatives. Well, where do you go to church? Well, I'm Protestant. I protest the rest of you. That's not a good dinner conversation. We're protesting. Now, Luther didn't want to leave the Catholic Church. 
He wanted to reform it. He said that it was a good church. There were good things happening, but it had become corrupted and needed to be reformed. It doesn't happen. They kick him out of the church. And they kick anybody out who would hold to salvation by grace through faith. They say, you're cursed. You're anathema in the Council of Trent. And as a result of that, the Lutheran Church begins. In Switzerland, we have Calvin beginning the Reformed Church. We have Ulrich Zwigli, who creates the Anabaptist uh, denomination, if you will, which would be where we would find our background from. We would then have, during that time, not soon after the Reformation, who comes to the United States? The pilgrims. Where, why are the pilgrims coming here? Because they're getting away from what? Persecution. Why? Because they're protesters of the church. And so they get on a ship and they head over here to America. And what happens? They split out and they start forming colonies. Roger Williams starts the colony of Rhode Island. It is the first Baptist colony. Think about that. Not just a Baptist church, a whole Baptist colony. As a result of that, the word of God spreads, denominations grow, and even 150 years later, two brothers by the name of John and Charles Wesley start a methods denomination called the Methodist. So where do we find ourselves within that? We're an independent Bible church. Church history is important for us to understand because we fall within what I would call the Baptist side of the Protestant denomination. There's a reason why we would consider ourselves Baptist. Now, I just got some people nervous who say, I'm not Baptist. And I would say, why? Write down the word Baptist on your sheet of paper. We're moving quickly. I just did church history in what, about eight minutes? That's about 2,000 years in eight minutes. I think I did all right. Okay. Write down Baptist, B-A-P-T-I-S-T-S. What does Baptist stand for? A great acronym that you can understand. Baptist, the B stands for biblical authority. We stand on the biblical authority of the Word of God. There's no pope, there's no hierarchy, there's no tradition. We hold to the Word of God, the biblical authority to the Word of God. We also then see... A, we talk about the autonomy of the local church. What that means is there is no denomination. There's no denomination that tells us what to do or what not to do. We don't own, uh, we don't uh, not own ourselves, but uh, we own all of who we are, and we are able to make decisions about who we are. The next thing is, is the P. We believe in the priesthood of believers. I'm not a priest and you're not the laity. There isn't this separation between I've got the only way to God and you have to come through me. Who believes that? The Catholics believe that. And they say, if you want your sins to be forgiven, you have to do what? Come to me. If you want to receive communion, you have to get it. If you don't, it's a mortal sin. You go to hell. So who do you have to come to? Me. We don't believe that. Why? Because we are of a Baptist heritage. We say that all of us, First Peter says, that we are the priesthood of all believers. We're equal before God. And while we may have differing roles, all of us have equal standing before God. Uh, the word uh, T stands for two ordinances. We do not believe in the sacraments, but we believe in the ordinance of baptism and communion. The letter I there in Baptist stands for that we have individual liberty or conscience. And what that means is, is because we are priests and because we have the word of God and the Holy Spirit within us, we have the right and the ability to make decisions on behalf of ourselves. That we can interpret the scriptures. I can do it. You can do it. It doesn't just take a certain group of people or clergy to make that happen. Next, say, uh, S means saved church membership. What that means is that we believe that the church can't save you. The ordinances or the sacraments that we're a part of can't save you. But to be a member in the church of Almighty God means that you must uh, deny yourself and take up the cross by trusting Christ as your Lord and Savior. And we believe that is the S. The final thing that we see... Uh, that's T, uh, let's see here, S-T, we believe in the two offices within the church, elders and deacons. The S means that we believe in the separation of church and state. You say, wait a minute, what are you talking about? That's what we believe. We believe that no nation, no government should have the right to come in and tell us what we believe and don't believe. Does that make sense? So we are in some ways Baptists. 
Just to alleviate some of that, we're not Baptist by connection when it comes to any affiliation. We're not Baptist in name. But our heritage within church history, our closest cousin, if you will, because there are distinctions that make us different than that, is that we are of the Baptist background. Some people, I'm sure, have asked, what kind of church do you go to? I go to a non-denominational church. Thank you, you answered nothing. You can say we're a Protestant church that has a lot of Baptist heritage and doctrine, and yet we are independent. We govern ourselves. What else do we need to know about this? i got to get moving here. The next thing that we need to understand is we need to understand how it all fits together. How does it fit together organizationally? Very quickly, going back to the definition, if, uh, uh, Krista, if you could go back to the definition of the church, if you could move back there, that would be great. There are four things that we need to understand organizationally. Number one, we need to follow the same Lord. Follow the same Lord. Write that down somewhere. Go, uh, go back uh, to the definition of the church would be uh, at the end of point number one. The second point that we need to understand is we need to pursue the same way of life. Next, we need to submit to qualified leaders, and we need to partner together as laborers. How does that all fit together? As we follow the same Lord, we must be a community of what? Regenerated believers. We're not here because we're all Bears fans. We're not here because we all make the same amount of money. We're not here because we come from the same background. We're not here because we have the same education. We are here... Because we follow the same Jesus Christ as our Lord. That's why. The next thing we see is that we need to not only follow the same Lord, but we must pursue the same way of life. Go back, uh, go back to where you're at, please. Thank you. We need to uh, follow the same way of life. So what are we to do? If we're obeying Jesus, we're this community of regenerated believers, then we need to be obedient to the Scriptures. That means we have to have the same view of Scripture. We cannot have one person that says, well, the Bible really doesn't mean anything. And the other person sitting next to you says, the Bible means everything. It's everything that we are. Well, as a church, we believe that this is the only authority that we have. If your elders tell you to do something that cannot be substantiated in the Word of God, you should revolt. You should revolt. Okay? Because we are not the end all. The Bible is our authority. We are to then make sure that we follow that and pursue that. How do we do that? We gather together. We worship. We listen to preaching. We observe the biblical ordinances, the symbols of the church. We're unified by the same spirit. And if so being, if we fall into sin, we welcome the discipline of the ecclesia of Village Bible Church. Next, we pursue the same way of life. We submit it to qualified leaders. We hold uh, that our elders are the qualified leaders of the church who are to lead and guide and protect and watch over the church as under-shepherds of the great shepherd, First Peter says, as under-shepherds of the flock of God. And finally, we partner together. In what ways? We scatter to fulfill the great commandment, which is what? That's the great commission, great commandment to love all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the great commandment. We are to scatter ourselves to go and do that in our workplaces, in our schools, with our family and friends, and we are to then do the great commission to go into all the world and to baptize and teach people about Jesus Christ, making them disciples. That is the reason why we organize together. It isn't so we can just take in money. It isn't so that we can just get together and sing some nice songs and hear a preacher preach. It isn't so that we have activities together. We come together for this purpose. Next, we see the thing, once we've lived out that framework, how does it get worked out? Write this down very quickly in your outlines. Oh, you're going to write a lot. I stole this from Scott Cap. How do we live out this definition? There are five things that every church must do, and it is with the acronym WIFES. What are we? We are the blank of Christ, the bride of Christ. What is our responsibility? Number one, W, it is to worship. It is to worship. That is what we're called to do. 
The next letter in the word of uh, wife is, of course, I, which means instruction. We are to teach and to proclaim the word of God. We are to equip the saints for the works of service. Uh, The next one is F. We are to fellowship. We are to gather together, serving one another, loving one another, ministering to one another through fellowship. E is for evangelism. We are to go out and tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the last one is S. We are to do works of service. This is the elder's responsibility to make sure these five elements take place in a church. If we don't do these things, we cease to be the church. So where does that leave us? It leaves us running out of time and one final thing, and that is we need to look at the church biblically. We need to look at the church biblically. There are three things very quickly that I want us to walk away from. You've heard a lot of information, and this is a first sermon that will get to the practical. But we need to understand and know these things if we want to understand the church. And so what do we need to know biblically about the church? Number one, the church involves a special person. It involves a special person. We are not an organization unto ourselves. This is not someone that we've elected or put together. But Matthew sixteen eighteen says, You are Peter, and on this rock... I will build my church. Catholics believe that the rock is Peter. It's not it. In fact, the name Peter is the, is the small stone word that is used. It is not Petra, but it is the feminine Petros, which means you are Peter, you are this small rock, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Well, what does that mean for us? That means Jesus Christ is our foundation. He is the beginning and the end. Everything we say, everything that we do, any we don't worship anybody else but Jesus and him alone. There's nobody else involved in this thing called the church. It is us and or it's Jesus and it is Jesus alone. He's the one that created it, he's the one that built it, he's the one that will allow us to be victorious over sin and the devil. The next thing it involved was a secret plan. Understand this. Write down this passage, Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 10. I won't read all of it, but this is what uh, Paul says. I am a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. What it says is that throughout the Old Testament times, God's plan was always for the church. But a time that was hidden, was secret from the prophets and the patriarchs, became a reality in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so what does Ephesians 3.10 say? It is now his purpose to make the church the change agent of the world. And so what do we say about that? God, just like our president, a lot of people say our president's a one-trick pony right now. Health care, health care, health care. I'll give you an example of what God does. He says, church, church, church. Who's to change the world? Church. Who's to be salt and light in the world? Church. Who are to be my holy ones? Church. God in the Old Testament worked with a covenant people of Israel. God now works with both Jew and Gentile alike. He has created us, the church, to do his work, to make the world know who God is, what God's about, and what God is going to do in our future. How does he do that? Through the church. If we don't do it, nobody will. God doesn't have a second plan. He says it is through the church. And so what are we to do? It involves a specific purpose. Let me close with this. First Peter chapter 2 gives us a wonderful understanding of the church and our call then after we learn of what our uh, place is. This is what it says. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. We need to understand our purpose is the following, to tell others about Jesus Christ, to tell others about him who called us out of darkness into the wonderful light of God. We are to share our testimony. We are to abstain from sin. We are to live exemplary exemplary lives so that we may reach our world with the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. Folks, this isn't just a place that you have a Sunday morning appointment. It is God's specific plan that you and I together as the church will change the world for Jesus Christ. It is because of us banded together, Greek and non-Greek, Jew and Gentile, together from all backgrounds and understandings that we would form the local, visible, village Bible church. And God says that our calling is to go out and to serve our community, reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to learn next week how the church at Acts begins to do that and see how we can make and fulfill the marks of a healthy and growing church. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. A ton of information this morning, Father. And I pray that it would be found on good soil. That we would hear and understand. That we wouldn't just say, hey, this doesn't, it doesn't affect me. So, Lord, I, I don't need to know this. This is your bride. This is your church. And we should know it just as we know our own spouses and our own children. So, Father, I pray that you'd give us a hunger to know what this organism is. It's your bride. We are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture. And, Lord, I pray that we would live like that, that as a holy priesthood, a nation belonging to you, uh, that we would go to the world and tell others about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we have been called out of darkness and brought into your marvelous light. Lord, I pray that as we leave this place, that we would know how we are together with that such a great cloud of witnesses working and serving, building on the foundation that was set by you, Christ, and the apostles and the prophets, that we would know our place, we would know our calling, and that we would live it out, abstaining from sin and living wholehearted lives for you. Give us the strength, the strength of the Holy Spirit that you poured out on your church at the day of Pentecost so that we may live upright and holy lives until you come. Send us forth from this place in a spirit of peace and in love as we serve one another, as we fellowship with one another, and as we give all thing, in all things we give you the glory, honor, and praise. It is for you that we do this because you've done so much. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen.